0: As we go on in our worship, we want to turn now to God's Word. Uh, We're actually beginning a new series this week. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah for um, probably pretty close to a year. It's a a big book, and it has lots of wonderful things in it. So even a year will not nearly exhaust it. But uh, it's my joy to be able to uh, look at the words of the prophet Isaiah with you this morning. Um, And so Kathy will come up for us first to read from Isaiah 2, and then Dawn from Isaiah 6. Jerry will come up and read from Isaiah 40 and then John from Isaiah 64. And what we're going to do this morning is really just an overview message of the book of Isaiah. So I want you to get the big picture of the book of Isaiah and then we're going to start walking through it chapter by chapter. And the big picture that I want you to get most out of Isaiah that you'll see in all these verses, I think, is simply to see the glory and the splendor of God. That was Isaiah's primary theme whether he was speaking to the wayward people of Israel, whether he was speaking to the nations that were attacking Israel, whether he was speaking to the people in fear inside Israel or the people who were in exile away from Israel, what he wanted to remind them all of was the greatness, the glory, the splendor of God. And so just be on the lookout for those words as we read from the prophet Isaiah this morning and then as I proclaim his word to you. So as we go to God's word, let me say one more brief prayer, just that God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what he has for us. Father, we know that the way we worship you now is not by great works of might on our part, but it is, Lord, by trusting in you and what you have done. And so, Lord, we know that even as we sit here to hear your word read to us and proclaim to us that we worship you in our hearts as we put our faith in that word. And so, God, would you grant that faith to rise now as your word is read to us and as I proclaim your word, would you give us eyes to see beautiful things in your law? And, Lord, would you give me words that can adequately express the power of this message that you've given to Isaiah, and the beauty of who you are. I ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. i to come on up.
1: Isaiah 2, 2-17. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountains of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between nations, and will render decisions for many people. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up swords against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have abandoned your people and Jacob, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east, and they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of the foreigners. Their lands have also been filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots their land has also been filled with idols they worship the work of their hand that their fingers have made so the common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased but do not forgive do not forgive them enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of men will be abased, and the loftiness of men will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against anyone who is proud and lofty, and against anyone who is lifted up, that they may be abased and it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that all lofty and lifted up, against all the oats of the fashion, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills are lifted up, against every high tower, against every forfeited wall, against all the ships of Teresh, against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiest men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day.
2: Isaiah 6, 1-7 In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he took with tongs from the altar And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for.
3: Isaiah 49-17 Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust dust on scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not su- suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness.
4: Isaiah 64, 1-8 through 8. Oh that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you and your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and we shall, be, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities, but now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are, the, we are all the
0: work of your hand. Well, amen. As we read at the very beginning of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, we saw um, what is essentially a summary of the whole book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, in those verses, we saw Isaiah indict the nation of Israel for their sins and tell them that a day of judgment is coming. And the way that Isaiah framed that judgment, he closes in verse 17 as saying, the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That message that the Lord alone will be exalted, again, is the theme of the whole book of Isaiah. Isaiah wants us to see, he wanted the people of Israel to see that God alone should be exalted. And the primary reason why Isaiah wanted the people to see that God alone should be exalted is because God really is unique in all of existence. Because God alone is creator, and everything else is created. And for Isaiah, that had enormous implications. Now before I jump into exactly how Isaiah himself saw God, and what Isaiah wants us to see in God, I do want to take just a moment to lay the scene for you. Because Isaiah, of course, was a real man, living in a real time, His prophecy is not simply some timeless words that are for everybody for all time. Of course, we have much that we can learn from him, but first we must understand the time in which he was speaking. And I think when we see the time in which he was speaking, we can see the great relevance that it has for us today. Now we saw in Isaiah chapter 6 that Isaiah had a vision of the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. Now King Uzziah died about 600 or 700 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. And he died about 250 years after the beginning of the monarchy. In other words, Isaiah began his ministry at about the same distance from the beginning of Israel that we are now from the beginning of the nation of the United States. So if you think back to 1776 and the founding of our nation to today... That's about Isaiah's conception of the founding of the monarchy of Israel, King David, and his own day. And in the time of Isaiah, Israel had come into a period of great danger. The nation of Assyria, which was situated just to the north of Israel, was growing in power and was hungry for more land. And because of that, they were taking over many smaller nations around them, and Israel was one of those smaller nations. Now in Isaiah's day, Israel was not even a single nation. Israel had already been split into the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. That happened as soon as Solomon died. The northern part and the southern part decided that they could no longer be in the same nation and so they parted ways. And Isaiah is speaking primarily to that southern nation of Judah, but of course Judah feels a lot of kinship with the nation of Israel just to their north. And again, in Isaiah's day, Assyria was coming against that northern nation of Israel, and because Assyria was coming against them, Judah was very much in this notion of trying to figure out how they were going to save themselves. And just like anyone else on earth, when they saw this great nation coming against them, they thought, oh, the only way we are going to be saved is if we can find some really powerful allies. And so all throughout the book of Isaiah, we see Judah kind of scrambling around looking for someone who could possibly save them from this great kingdom of Assyria. And all the while, Isaiah the prophet is calling out to the kings of Judah and is telling the kings of Judah to stop. Don't go looking around for someone who can save you from Assyria when the only one who can save you from Assyria is God himself. And that's why Isaiah focused his message so strongly on the glory and the majesty of God because the the threat to Judah in those days was this nation of Assyria that seemed like it was so powerful that it could wipe anyone else off the map. And indeed it had, and in that day there was no nation on earth as powerful as the nation of Assyria. And Assyria was a fearful and terrible nation. They did things to the people that they conquered that cannot even be spoken from this pulpit this morning. They were an evil and destructive people. And so it was right that Judah feared what would happen to them if Assyria were to come down and to conquer them and to take them over. Now, unfortunately for Judah and for Isaiah and for all the people of that time, Isaiah also ministered in the days of one of the wickedest kings that Judah ever had, King Ahaz. You can read about King Ahaz in Second Kings and Second Chronicles. But to sum it up, Ahaz was one of the worst, most idolatrous, wickedest kings that Judah ever had. He even burned his own children to foreign gods, to idols, trying to seek out favor for his nation. Now at the same time, God was very merciful to Judah. And after the wicked king Ahaz, he gave them a good king, Hezekiah. And because Hezekiah was a good king, and because Hezekiah was faithful to the Lord, and he trusted in the Lord alone, God delivered them. But toward the middle of the book of Isaiah, we also see that even Hezekiah would not be faithful all his life long, that even he would grow proud, would set himself up higher than the God of Israel. And as a result, Isaiah gives the prophecy to Hezekiah that Judah will soon fall, not in the time of Hezekiah, but in the years to come. Now, one of the unique things about the prophet Isaiah is that Isaiah was able to see further into the future of his nation than any other prophet. And so the other prophets that you'll read in the Old Testament, especially the the major prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, Isaiah covers all of their time periods because Isaiah saw the day when Babylon would become a great nation and would take down the nation of Judah. And then Isaiah saw the day when the people would be taken to exile into Babylon and they would be strangers in their own land. And then Isaiah even saw the day of restoration when the king of Persia would send some of the Israelites back to Judah to rebuild their land. And because of this, Isaiah the prophet can give us this beautiful panorama of God's power and might over all the nations. He can show us how God is more powerful than Assyria and Babylon, and as we read, how God even accounts every nation on earth as dust in the scales. And so how that means for us today, that whatever threat we may see, and I know as Americans, we don't feel very threatened as a nation, but even whatever threats we may see to America are minor in comparison with the power and the glory of God. And how, Lord willing, you can also see that if even the nation of the United States is dust on the scales to God, then whatever is troubling you in your own life, whatever sort of trials you may have, whatever sort of fears you may have, maybe it's fears of opinions of others, Maybe it's trials of some bodily sickness or suffering that you have or some relational suffering that you have. Whatever the the trial may be that you experience, whatever the fears may be that so overwhelm your mind at sometimes, that you can see here in the book of Isaiah that there is a God who is on the throne, who is so much more majestic and so much more powerful than anything on earth, that we can actually laugh at the future that we can laugh at anything that would come against us. Because if our God is for us, then there is nothing that can be against us. Again, as we read in Isaiah 64, from of old, no ear has heard, nor has the eye seen a God beside you who acts in behalf of, who acts for the one who waits for him. So that is Isaiah's call to us, beloved, is that we would wait on the Lord, that we wouldn't try to take up our problems in our own strength, in our own wisdom, but that we would wait on the Lord if the problem is as big as Assyria coming down to wipe us off the map, or if the problem is as small as some coworker not thinking that we're very great to work with. Whatever the problem may be, God is able to right the wrong. He is able to solve the problem or if not solve the problem, He is able to sustain us and hold us up in the midst of it. Because that is the nature of His power and of His glory. And So that's what I want to spend the rest of the message on this morning, is just taking some time to try to grasp just the faintest picture of the power and the majesty of this God. Now I've already said something about this by way of the way that it frees us from fear, but I just want to give you a couple other reasons or metaphors for why it's so important for us to have a right picture of the power and the majesty of God. The first reason that it's so important is because it's only as we come to see God rightly and it's only as our hearts come to trust in him rightly that anything else in our life works the way it should. Indeed, I think that the, the reason why God invented the solar system is to give us just a very clear picture of this reality. Of course, you probably learned in school that the only way the solar system works is because of the fact that there is a very massive sun, a massive star in the middle of our solar system. And that star has so much mass that it's able to keep every other planet orbiting rightly around it. If that star were to be taken out of the middle of our solar system, all the other planets and moons and every other bit of dust that flies around our solar system would come crashing down at once and it would be a disaster. And again, God gives this to us as a picture of our lives. He is telling us that we need a sun at the center of our solar system. We need a sun at the center of our lives. We need something so massive, so glorious, so bright, so majestic, that everything else in our lives can orbit rightly, so that nothing else in our lives will overwhelm us or will take on its wrong place. And our lives come into trouble as soon as anything else in that solar system begins to rival that sun in the middle, as soon as we start giving more weight, paying more attention, saying something is more beautiful, more bright than that sun that is at the very center. And beloved, this is the battle of the Christian life each and every day. None of us is perfect in this. Every day I catch myself paying more attention to something else other than God than I should. So it's in those moments where I must repent and I must remember, God, you really are the most glorious, the most majestic thing in all of existence. Forgive me for how I am paying more attention to this, for how I am worried about this other thing when you are on your throne and when you are for me. So God is to be the sun at the center of our solar system. So the application of this message, the application of the book of Isaiah, goes in every little nook and cranny of our lives. There is no one application of the glory of God. God himself, when he is at the center of our lives, will change the orbit of everything else. And so we must test ourselves daily in our lives to ask ourselves the question, is God at the center of my life? Or do I have something else there? And as Isaiah also saw, Beloved, this question can be so hard to answer because we can go about religious duties even. And in the wickedness of our hearts, we can think that the religious duties, we think, oh, well, I'm doing this for God. And therefore, God must really be the center. But Isaiah also looked at the people of his own day who would go about performing many religious duties and he would say, your hearts are far from God. Because they went about their duty as simply a duty talk about that more in just a moment. But God must be the center of the solar system of your life. This is the first reason why this is so critical. But second, this is critical because only when we understand the greatness and the character of God, do we understand the basis of God's love for us. You see, sometimes if we don't think rightly about the power and majesty of God, if we don't think rightly about the fact that God always existed and will always exist, then we can start to think of Jesus, the the perfect sign of God's love for us, as someone who simply popped out of nowhere. That, That God just had a good idea one day and was like, oh, I know, I should become incarnate and I should show them my love through dying on a cross and rising again. What we see in the book of Isaiah is that Jesus, that the incarnation of God himself, was not simply an idea that popped into God's head at one point in history. That Jesus is actually an expression of the deepest heart of God, the deepest character of God, such that God's mind cannot be changed about his redemption of sinners like us. The, the root of God's love for us is not in a momentary decision that God made. The root of God's love for us is not in something that God can ever change His mind about or waffle on. The root of God's love for us is the defense of His own glory and His own name. And therefore, we can be sure that we have security in Jesus Christ. Again, that if God draws us in, then he will never cast us out. And so these are the the two things that I want to propose to you as being most critical for understanding what Isaiah has to say to us about the glory and majesty of God because we need a sun for our solar system, and because we need rock-solid confidence that God is for us. Beloved, if you doubt that God is for you, or if you think that God might change His mind tomorrow about loving for you or caring for you, then no matter how powerful or how great God is, it will be of no comfort to you. Because you will think, well, maybe He's really exercising all that power, using all that power for someone else, but not for me. And so we also must understand how Isaiah paints a picture for us of the love of God and of the redemption of God that cannot change, where God will not turn away from doing good to us as long as we live. So with that being said, what is it about God in Isaiah that is so unique and that is so extraordinary? What do we see about God in this glorious book of prophecy that we couldn't see if we were to read the other books of the Bible but not read this one? What I think we see most clearly in Isaiah, to put it in one word, is that we see God's supremacy. We see his supremacy. We see that he is above all else that he is the source of all else that he is more excellent than all else we see the supremacy of God's being in particular and God's being of course is the source of everything that God does and everything that he is And so if God in Himself, in His own character, is better than anything else on the earth, then we also know that His works, that His creation, that His decisions will be better than everything else on the earth. To give you simply one picture of this, Isaiah 43 verses 9 to 13 say this, All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be be any after me. I, I am Yahweh. And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Beloved... There can truly be no other definition of God than to simply say that He is God. Because any definition that we give of God must necessarily incorporate things that we understand, things that we perceive, things that are on this earth that we know and we can try as we might to define God in light of them. But none of those things could possibly define God because God is alone. He is unique. He stands by Himself. He is before all things and He created all things from nothing. And therefore, the loftiest, the highest thought that we may have of God must necessarily fall infinitely short of how great and how majestic He truly is. Now the reason why Isaiah could prophesy things like that is because he himself had a vision of God in his throne room. And that is what we read in Isaiah chapter 6. And I think it is one of the most beautiful and mesmerizing passages in all of Scripture. Again, to, to return to it just briefly, to see some of the richness that is packed in here. In Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Now just notice those three words right there at the very beginning. A throne that is high and lifted up. Isaiah saw God as king. And it says, "The train of his robe filled the temple." I believe that that is supposed to signify for us God's beauty, His glory, that He has this garment on that's so majestic, just his garment is so mesmerizing, that the train of his robe fills up the temple. And then he has these creatures that are all around him. In verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Again, words strain to show us the glory of this God upon His throne. These seraphim with six wings and even these these spiritual beings of seraphim have to cover their face and have to cover their feet in the presence of the Lord. And they cry out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, many messages could be preached just on the idea of holiness alone. What does it mean that God is holy? Well, most fundamentally, I believe what we see about the nature of holiness in the Scriptures is that holiness means devoted to God. If something is holy, then it is separated from common purposes or from common use, and it is devoted to God. So I believe that when these seraphim are crying out here that God is holy, 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 they are crying out that God is devoted to Himself and to the display of His own glory. And again, this is one of the messages that we see from Isaiah so clearly and that is so crucial for us to understand. Here's Isaiah 40, verses 21 to 23. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? Notice these questions of Isaiah, saying this is something you should understand. You should have already known. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. You see, God is declaring His greatness and His majesty that He sits above the circle of the earth. And then just a little bit later in Isaiah 42, 8-9, to we get this statement. He says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God says, my glory I give to no other. Or perhaps most powerfully in Isaiah 48, verses 9-11. to He says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Beloved, God works only for the sake of His own glory and His own praise. If God were to work primarily for something else, for some created thing, then God Himself would be an idolater. And God will not commit idolatry. Now, beloved, I know that hearing these words can seem fearful on one level. What do you mean that God works for Himself and for no other? And yet, beloved, I think that the good news in this is that this is precisely the most profound basis of God's love for us, of His commitment for us, because God's glory, His majesty, and our good are not two separate things, but they are one in the same. We know that they are one in the same, first and foremost, because of what I mentioned earlier about how God must be the sun in the center of our solar system. And so for God to exalt his own name so that we might behold his glory as it is, means that he is going to make everything else in our lives orbit rightly around him. And if God himself were to function in some other way, then again, our own lives would be ruined. But beloved, even more significantly, I want you to hear these words of Jesus Christ in John chapter 17. This is verses 1 to 5. This is just before Jesus goes to the cross. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus says, the hour has come. The time of my death upon a cross has come. And what is going to happen as Jesus dies upon the cross? The Father is going to glorify the Son, and the Son is going to glorify the Father. God is going to get praise and glory for Himself. And then going on in John 17. Since you have given Him, that is Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, here, there, again, another echo of the supremacy of God. This is eternal life. This is the best thing in life, to know the only true God. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, Jesus is praying in this hour of his crucifixion for our sakes. The crucifixion by which we are forgiven by which we are brought into Christ Jesus and then offered newness of life by His resurrection, Jesus is saying that in this very work He is giving glory to God. And so when we go back to the prophet Isaiah and we hear God Himself say, for My own sake, for My own sake I do it, for how should My name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Beloved, this can encourage our hearts. It can remind us that if the Lord will so defend His own name and His own righteousness, then He will defend us in His Son who glorified His name by winning us upon that cross. And so in this way, beloved, even though we can see how given the majesty and the glory of God, all of our lives fall tremendously short. Even though we can see see that given the glory and the beauty of God, our sin must be all the greater because we offend this glory and this beauty, even though that is true we see that in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, we have security and we have safety. We have security and safety in Him because Jesus Himself glorifies God the Father. And God the Father works to glorify Himself. And because God truly is the most glorious the most radiant, the most transcendent, the most beautiful of all beings that could ever be fathomed. And so, beloved, we can have joy and peace in His presence. And yet, even though we know that we have joy and peace in His presence because He is so great, we also know that we dare not treat Him lightly. We dare not treat him like he is small. No, we honor him. And so in the words of Isaiah, verses 12 and 13, Isaiah is speaking to Israel and he says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but Yahweh of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And this, beloved, is what it means to have God as the sun in the center of our solar systems. We understand that we must fear the Lord above all else, and we must not fear anything else on this earth because God truly is seated above the circle of the earth, because He truly is sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up with seraphim flying around Him, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. Beloved, when we see God for who He is, then we will become like Him. Then we will rejoice all the more in the work of His Son, who gave His life, that we need not come under the wrath of this perfect and holy, holy God, but that we might know His grace and His favor. With that, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know that we all think far too lightly of You, God. Lord, if we are like grasshoppers, and if Entire nations and kingdoms are as dust on the scales. Then, Lord, how are we to fathom him? But, Lord, we know you give grace through your Son. And so, Lord, we ask for grace that we may indeed see you rightly, God, that our lives may be transformed, and that we may know the joy of not having to fear anything at all in this life because we have perfect confidence that you are for us. So because of that, God, would you make us bold? Would you make us resplendent, God, as we behold you and as we enjoy you? It's in Jesus' name that we pray.
2: Amen.